1: Welding instructor Alex DeClair knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills.
2: There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality
1: simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com Metaverse Impact. For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com partners in crime media.
3: I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. crime writers on is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime pop culture other podcasts and on this episode a fatal carjacking kicks off a high-profile manhunt targeting boston's black neighborhoods the response inflamed simmering racial tensions though evidence of the crime pointed elsewhere we'll discuss murder in boston roots rampage and reckoning Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, My Husband, and Love of My Life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Lumberjack Kevin.
2: Oh, are you talking about the shirt I'm wearing? Yes. Lumberjack shirt? That's yes. nice, right?
3: I do like it very much.
2: Makes me look all manly.
3: Your pivot to flannel has been... Yes. It's been a pivot for you this year. I've enjoyed it.
4: I've been doing it too. I have so much flannel now, I haven't had this much flannel since I graduated high school. Ah. We've gone
5: full New Hampshire. I was getting my haircut today... And uh, there were four men waiting and we all had flannel shirts on. And somebody said, well, who's, you know, Jeff or whatever. She said, oh, the one in the flannel. <laughs> and the, the was just like, that's like, what, what am I supposed to do? There's there?
3: like new heart, right? I mean the
5: white guy in the flannel? <laughs> yeah. I, well, that, that wouldn't have helped either. Yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah. I'm wearing my very collegiate uh, t-shirt today.
5: Oh, Robbie and Ellen. Law
3: college Law ish. Law college ish. Yes. Nice. Yes. Do I look collegiate? Yes or no? Not, <laughs> Not as
5: collegiate as me. <laughs> University of Vermont dad.
2: <laughs> Do you get that uh when you make the first tuition payment? No.
3: They give you nothing except they that, still charge you for exactly, it. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Also with the us only,
2: The only time you get free stuff is like an orientation. Right. They're like, you oh, get thank a you. frisbee yeah. and a classic water bottle. Yeah. Or like
3: a keen. They, they get free laundry, and Kevin's like, that ain't free.
2: It's "quote unquote free laundry." Exactly.
3: <laughs> <laughs> also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat
4: lady and author of the Piper Green series of cozy mysteries, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hey, Rebecca, and the crime scene in the second Piper Green book has been turned into, well, will be turned into a beautiful park. I so. know. I have a I have a follow-up question
3: about that that I want to ask you. And finally, our resident Doubting Thomas, the author of the City Trilogy of Novels, host of Strange Arrivals, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hi, Toby. Hey, Rebecca. So two things, Larbricker. Mm-hmm. Big doings in your town. First of all, the Grinch made national news (laughs) from Exeter, New Hampshire. Did you guys see this? No. What's going on? All right. So, the Word Barn, which is the little performance venue across the street from Laura's old house where Laura had her book launch last time she had a Mm -hmm. book, and we've been to many times. And we're
2: going to be having something in New Hampshire. We're having a book.
3: We're having a Crime Writers On event there during Exeter Lit Fest. There was, once again, the Word Barn street side sign was wiped out by a car, and this time it was wiped out by... The Grinch.
4: The Grinch. Literally. Literally. I got a text from Ben, the owner, and he's like, hey, do you want to scoop? The Grinch just literally crashed on our front lawn and he sent me a picture. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not doing any reporting anymore. But this is such a great story. Yep. But it really sucks for you guys and your sign. Literally, the Grinch was sitting on their phone calling for help in their Grinch suit. There's somebody a, in a Grinch it suit. It was a, a full okay. on... It was a full Grinch suit. It was like not a pussyfooting around Grinch suit. Like this was all in Grinch suit, Grinch. It
3: was like Jim Carrey level Grinch suit guy in a car with no insurance, apparently. <laughs> like why it, The Grinch
4: doesn't need insurance. <laughs> then his mom went on like Channel 9 or something. I saw it and was like... Well, he was just delivering presents to children because that's what he likes to do. His
2: sedan grew two <laughs> sizes that day.
4: Yes. And this made this made national news. It was pretty exciting,
3: honestly. Yep. Look at that it's guy. a
5: great publicity for the word barn.
3: Yeah. It was pretty incredible. Isn't that an incredible costume?
4: It was pretty wild. (laughs) It was pretty wild. That's right. Yeah. So Exeter's had a lot of news this week. Well,
3: also, so this, and we, as you mentioned, the side of the murder scene in your second Piper Green book, which was an empty lot, um, is being turned into a park because the couple that owned the land, Laura Bricker, by the way, is fully responsible for this being turned into a park because (laughs) the couple that owned the land (laughs) did this incredibly baller power play. With the town, yep. where they were like, "We're gonna donate this lot to the town, only if it gets turned into a park." But you only have like a week to decide. <laughs> it's like, it's like you only have to the end of the year to decide. And, if, and yeah. if you don't decide by then to take this land donation, you can't have it. And so the town council or whatever had to make the decision. And then they were like, "Oh, but we don't know what the costs are going to be to have a park. We don't know." And Lara fucking Bricker went on social media and was like, "Everyone." needs to go to this meeting because there might not be a park and it might just be turned into some. And like, there needs to be a park. My murder scene needs to be a park. My murder scene <laughs> needs to, and everyone's like, why wouldn't it be a park? And, and you read the article, it's very reasonable. The town, oh, the town,
4: like leaders are like, dude, we don't even know what a park is going to cost. They only gave us like a week to decide. Well, but, they did, to be fair, they actually started talking about it. In the summer, but it only got before the board recently. Right. so, Laura, you're responsible. So much pressure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I did get up and talk at the town meeting and do some shameless self-promotion. Yes. Of, I was like, and there's a reason I chose this as a murder scene, because it's an eyesore. And P.S., all these landscapers are going to donate their goods and services. So you should all approve this. Are they
3: going to name this Bricker Park now?
2: <laughs> no, they're going to name it call for the it, couple that... They should call it... Piper Green.
4: Yes.
2: (laughs) Right? Isn't that it? That's amazing, right? Piper Green. No, it's going
4: to be named for the couple's business um, that donated it to the town. And they, I will say, are a very charitable couple that has really improved our downtown, owns a number of buildings in the downtown area that they have really brought up and renovated and done a nice job. Yes. And now they've strong-armed your town into having a park, which I'm very... And now they've strong-armed. And the town, in their response... They scheduled a meeting at 8 o'clock on a Thursday during Christmas week to discuss this, trying to totally deter people from going to a meeting, I think. Yeah, 100% they were trying to deter and people. And everybody showed up, and I was like, ha-ha! That's right.
5: Well, they only had a week. Yeah. Like, what were they supposed to do? Monday Night Football? That takes <laughs> out that day.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, it was pretty exciting. It was a pretty exciting week in Exeter. And the
2: last thing for uh, Piper Green fans to note that actually happened is you always talk about how that muffin truck got stuck under the low bridge yes and again in real life that low overpass there was a box <laughs> truck last week they got stuck underneath it so it's like it really happens
4: oh it happens all the time even though there are signs all the way there are like multiple signs telling people they can't get through it and yet people continue to try to drive through it mean, it's, it's not a place
5: where you'd expect to find a bridge to be honest with it is you. a
4: very low like it's funny because you know when you
3: drive through there with a car that has like proximity sensors that beeps when you go near things which i now have. Like I went through that and it was like boop, 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 that thing is fucking tight, that little bridge. Yeah. <laughs> From all directions. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, it tells you what the clearance is. And if you're driving a box truck, you should know. Twelve feet, three inches? That's is that me? me? I don't know.
3: Yeah, no. It's also tight on the sides. It's like
4: a little angle. Yeah. It is. And people that don't pay attention have almost side-swiped me more than once going under that. Yeah. So I'm always like Okay, am I going to hit the wall, or am I going to hit the other car? So you go, to the, like, to go through like go through a
3: birth canal to
4: get into Exeter. <laughs> yeah,
5: <laughs> was that built like during horse and carriage days? I mean, it's how hard old to is say. It?
4: Yeah, it's probably pretty old. I mean, you know, train days.
5: <laughs> you certainly wouldn't build it now like that. Oh. Need some of that infrastructure money to widen it.
4: Yes.
3: Well, there's other ways to get to Exeter. It's going to our park, Kevin.
5: Yeah. Uh-huh. L- Lars already forced the town to spend all its extra money on a park.
3: <laughs> all right. All right. Anyway, we have other things to talk about, Kevin. This is obviously Thursday's podcast. We're talking about the murder in Boston television version, right? Yep. What are we talking about on Monday's show?
2: As first, first us on Monday. We're going to be talking about the companion podcast to this story, which is also called. It's called the Murder in Boston podcast, and the Boston Globe produced this documentary in association with HBO Documentary Films, and so the Boston Globe is sort of the lead. I guess content creator for the podcast version. I think it's going to be interesting We're not only going to talk about how this podcast and the documentary differ and where the you know where they're alike but you know we'll also kind of see what the observations of local reporters are as opposed to just sort of like what the view is from you know documentarians who don't have a connection and are looking at it more impartially. I don't know. I think it's going to be a really interesting discussion. Yeah,
3: I've been watching. I haven't listened to the podcast yet as of this taping, but I've been watching observations of people who do have done both on social media, and it's been an interesting conversation. So yeah, the people to, don't
2: really think the podcast is... Some are saying it's better than the doc, I'm so we'll see. Yeah, yeah.
3: We'll find out. All right, Kevin. I think it's time to uh, start what we're going to be talking about. Now that we know we're talking about on Monday, what do you think? Do it. All right. Let's go ahead and start talking about this documentary, Leading Off.
6: What color is your car, buddy? Blue. Blue Toyota Cressida. Blue. Are you in the
5: city of Boston? Yes. Can you give me any indication where you might be, any building? Uh, No. Okay, has your wife been shot as well? Yes. In the head. In the head? In
3: 1989, Boston was stunned by a dramatic carjacking. Charles Stewart said his wife Carol was shot in the head and he was gravely wounded by a black man who robbed them. While the media fought each other for the latest details, police launched an aggressive and prolonged manhunt in the adjacent black neighborhoods.
5: It was terrifying. It was like Wild Wild West, man. Because it was a black man and a pregnant white woman in Mission Hill, oh, we definitely got to get this guy.
3: Within the black community, the harassment and heavy-handed arrests opened fresh wounds in a city with a checkered past on race relations. But the police were so willing to believe Stewart's account of the bizarre attack, few suspected he was behind it all along.
5: Mayor Flynn, in a way that was completely unlike him, was sort of leaning over the desk and hunched over and looked up and he said, Neil, he did it. He said Charles Stewart killed his wife. He just jumped off the Tobin Bridge and killed himself.
3: From HBO Documentary Films in association with the Boston Globe comes Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage and Reckoning. The three part series retraces the investigation into who killed Carol Stewart against the backdrop of a liberal city unable to reconcile its racist history. We also hear from reporters, activists and local residents affected by the manhunt and an unapologetic cop who helped run it. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from murder in Boston. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. Now, Laura, you are from this area, as are we all. So how familiar were you with this case before watching this documentary?
4: Um, I was pretty familiar with this case. I mean, I remember seeing billboards about this case. I mean, we have I feel like we might have consumed some other media about this case a while back.
2: Trial four.
4: Yeah, Um, but it's definitely like if you live in like that Boston region, it's a case that you've heard of. However, what I thought was so cool about this documentary is that it brought a really fresh perspective to this case in terms of examining it in the context of Boston's racial history, how this case and the police handling of this case played into that. And I thought that it was just really smartly done in the way that that was the segue into covering this case was starting with the background about the busing in Boston and the mayor who came in who was like, I'm going to be the anti-racist mayor and everything. You know, it definitely surprised me. To see a little bit bigger context brought to this story that I'm already pretty familiar with. So, Kevin, by the very beginning, we had this dramatic
3: nine one one call. Yeah. What do you think about that nine one one call and how it played out?
2: Oh, well, I mean, I, you cannot deny the drama and urgency from that nine one one call the way it just, and it just launched this story into the stratosphere, right? So from the media perspective, starting off, there was no way this story was going to fade, right? And it ends up becoming like this closed loop of the coverage fueling the police response, which then fuels the coverage and then fuels the police response even further. And even if they arrested Charles Stewart like 24 hours later, this story was going to be in the paper for weeks just based on the way it started. And so, you know, the urgent media... I actually it's hard to say which came first here, but they just kept feeding off of each other. And certainly the reasons for why the police did what they did is, um, you know, a whole other part of the story. But the media coverage was just it was like too dramatic a story to not lead the paper. Right. Mm.
3: So one of the things that we have in this documentary, Toby, is a cop, Bill Dunn. And we see from a couple of other sources in the documentary that he was a known cop. In black neighborhoods in Boston, known to be a bully, known to be somebody who racially profiled people, known to be somebody who stepped over many, many lines in terms of ethics. But he's a major source in this documentary and, in my opinion, does himself no favors by sitting down and talking to documentarians. What do you think about Bill Dunn?
5: Uh, he seems to sort of personify Boston's <laughs> reputation as being a racist city in like one person
3: if racism were a person, it would be built away.
5: Yeah, I mean, I don't, like, I'm just interested in, like, what his thought process was going on this, other than in his mind, like, everything he's done is what should have been done. And I don't know if he actually believes it or he's just said it so much, but he makes it seem like he was always trying to be reasonable and just doing the job the way he wants to do. But in some ways, like, the, the crux of the whole story is there's this moment at the end where he's sort of lamenting the old Boston He feels bad for cops these days That they're in this new place It's not Boston anymore At least it's not the Boston he knew Like the Boston that was run by white Irishmen And blacks like stuck to their neighborhoods And uh, you know kind of kept their heads down If they knew it was good for them We did things different Because we were allowed to Not because we broke any rules We were allowed to do that City of Boston is not there anymore. Not the city I worked for. Not the city I grew up in. You know, it's interesting because he's really the only person who they have who's white, who's willing to talk about race stuff from the perspective of somebody who would have supported it at the time. So I don't know. He's, He's an interesting voice to have. And I think it also points out to like the huge problem with this documentary, in my opinion.
3: Bill Dunn is amazing to me. He's like Uncle Mark from Ghost Story. I am certain mm. he would watch this and think he came off great.
2: I think he was sitting here thinking he was like coming off as this roguish, funny cop, like the I, master I had the master key it was my foot. And you know, in some cases, like we have guys that are ray contours. We we often enjoy that. But this guy just I'm gonna say like he didn't read the room. He just doesn't get it. You
5: didn't read the centuries, what you're saying. Didn't
2: read the centuries. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's a lack of self-awareness,
3: but it's also just like
5: a horrible honesty. Yes. Yeah.
3: And there is an incredible moment at the beginning of this documentary where they're talking about the history of busing in Boston. They're showing news footage. Mm. And, you know, for anybody who does not believe that Boston is, if not one, the most racist city in America, watch the news footage in this documentary Where white people from Boston are extremely comfortable going on the news, talking to reporters and just saying the N-word, just saying it, that they have to go to school. Uh, I had to sit next to people who are the N-word in school. And that's the reason why I stopped going to school. No compunction about it. No hesitation. It's like an incredible, very, very show don't tell moment, and and I I think that legacy. I don't think that's gone. I mean, I, I don't. I just don't. I mean, if you if you know Boston at all, it's like you know that sort of legacy is absolutely still there. Bill Dunn is the proof that that le- legacy is still there because what he is mourning is just something that can no longer be expressed out loud in policing. But the fact that he's so comfortable sitting there and saying it is not that different than what that person was very comfortable saying on the news. Because you know he thinks he came off great. Laura, what did you think about this guy?
4: The thing about Bill Dunn is that I feel like he had no self-awareness at all. We're in a different time. And I think the fact that, number one, he was the only person that participated in this documentary that was involved at the time that this happened. And you see the historical footage of him. But at the end, he says, I don't regret the way I operated. And then he like does this like heart thing. And he's like, everything I did was like from my heart. And I'm like, I get that. But also like we're at some point, there's got to be some level of self-awareness. And I think what was particularly telling about his lack of self-awareness also was particularly telling about the time period that this happened in, because you can see how this went the way it did when you see a police officer who was like the king of Mission Hill at the time, that was his beat. And he was like this giant man. But it's also to me, like, you see all this progress that's been made. We see like, we now have a woman who's a mayor in Boston. We've had a lot of changes, but yet there's still this old Boston mentality that is never going to change. And I think the inclusion of him, it was good to have him in there because I think it really shone light on the way that this investigation played out the way it did and the way that it went as far as it did.
2: And guys, you know, one thing that like really struck me too at the end is where he said, we're just never going to know who killed Carol Stewart.
5: Yes. <laughs> and <a> sen- yeah. <laughs> That's what well, he said. <laughs> yeah. We never get the chance to finish the investigation. We never get the chance to say it wasn't Willie Bennett.
2: What the fuck? I mean, I mean what that belies is his inability to even consider the fact that he might be wrong. I probably still had the right guy. That's part of the issue. Like, What is not included in this documentary because it happened afterwards is that the new mayor of Boston, Mayor Wu, issued that formal apology to Willie uh, Bennett. Bennett and I forget the name of the other... Uh, suspect it's The other suspect Who was, who, who was brought in Who oh, I'm sure like The mayor like Just turned to somebody And said what We never fucking said Sorry for that Yeah Let's get that shit How done How hard is that to do How hard is that
3: Let's write a letter And say that the money We paid them wasn't enough And say we are sorry Like that's not fucking hard Yeah
2: But you know Like what Dunn is He's like He just could not possibly We'll never and, know We'll McKelda. never know Maybe I'm right Maybe it wasn't Chuck Stewart And all the people's doors That I kicked in I'm never gonna forget That radio On that wall Wall there, that dirty room. I'm never gonna forget Even that. Even
3: though Chuck Stewart's brother says he definitely fucking Fuck did out. it, and he threw the gun into the river, that's
2: where he said it was.
5: <laughs> well, I think, and they talk about this with Ray Flynn and his the one guy they interview who's like an advisor to him or whatever. Is that what they were really concerned about when there was all this crime, largely because of the crack epidemic in the whole Northeast, but also in Boston, was that they were really, really worried that it would spill into a black on white crime and then all hell was going to break loose. So that's what they thought was happening here. And my sense of that Bill Dunn like that was a narrative that he embraced, right? I mean, it must have been like freaking recess for him or whatever. It's like, oh shit, now I can start kicking down doors even more than I used to. It's like I get to do now my I can tell thing.
3: people I'm kicking down doors. Yeah. yeah,
2: and like to this day, couldn't even possibly admit that he made a mistake. Like no. what a mistake it would be to not
5: join us on Patreon.
3: Oh, Kevin! If you what a transition.
5: Yeah, they're very similar mistakes too. <laughs>
3: <laughs> We're gonna kick your dare down if you don't join us on Patreon. Should we call Bill Dunn and ask him to enforce us? D- no, we <laughs> should no. not.
2: Dude, you know, we do not want bill Dunn joining us on patreon i
3: i would pay i would join our patreon to never have to see that guy Uh, ever again
2: we can guarantee there is no bill Dunn in our patreon community by the way to get there go to patreon.com slash partners in crime
6: media you can
2: get episodes of crime writers on early and ad free if you support us at the leading off level but you also get all sorts of other great stuff there's more than 450 exclusive podcasts and other fun stuff there, they include the crime writers on after show. We also have a great podcast called Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club. It's a dive. It's a dive. It's, it's a deep. deep dive into a book. And it's a ball's in January, deep dive. Toby's talking about the Angel Makers. Toby, what is this book about?
5: Uh, I wish I knew, Kevin. I have not cracked it yet. Uh, oh no, but Toby! It's about a. Uh, it's about a woman who, who ran a murder <laughs> ring in Just, uh, Hungary. It's
3: about people who lie down in the snow and wave their arms up and down in their legs because they're angel makers. Yeah,
5: There's and no they turned makers. it into a 15-episode docu- uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know a whole lot about it other than uh, it got really good reviews and seemed like a little bit out of the ordinary for, for deep dive stuff. Nice. So just just take my word for it and read it. That's right.
2: Yeah. So take all your Barnes and & Noble and Amazon gift cards and start purchasing your copy of The Angel Maker so you're
5: ready.
3: And what's the next one after that that they can purchase to get prepared?
5: You don't have to purchase it because the next one is the first ever deep dive on a film so you can just rent it and it's uh, Killers of the Flower Moon.
3: Ooh set aside a day to watch that.
5: I wasn't sure, and then I watched it, and I was like, oh shit, there's a lot to talk about here. A lot to unpack. Yeah.
2: Oh, Other great podcasts include Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast, where she solves mysteries, or at least mysteries to her, in her quaint AF town of Exeter, New Hampshire, including who the fuck has been hanging cheese and Slim Jims from the park, and what does it mean? Laura, do you think it's in a cult?
4: I think this could be a crossover mystery in which Exeter's most recent famous news story about the Grinch who crashed into the word barn might be responsible mm. for the Slim Jims and trees. Maybe that is who is eating the Slim Jims. I don't know. We'll find out.
2: If you like a crazy fucking mystery, then you got to get Laura Brickers, leave it to Bricker Podcast. Lara, what? Yeah.
4: is it a charcuterie? tree? <laughs> a charcuterie? tree? <laughs> That's a good one. Remember. Thank you. I'll be here all I'm gonna night. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that.
2: We also have uh, Married with Podcasts is a podcast in which Rebecca and I answer your questions. We had a question from Joshua. Joshua, who wanted to know, why do all of his dates feel like job interviews? You know
3: why, Joshua? Why? Because you're making them like job interviews. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Well, if you want a job, then you got to like interview for it. No. I'm
4: curious. I'm going to listen to that one because I did see that question and I sympathized with Joshua. Yeah. I had a good answer for that one.
2: Also in Partners in Crime Media World, we have the latest episode of These are the Stories the Law and Order podcast out. This is a recent episode of SVU in which Olivia goes to arrest the rapist and finds <laughs> finds him in bed with his mom sucking on them. <gasps> yes. What? And Wait, we had a fantastic. His own
5: mom or that his yes. detective's mom? Oh. No. So not
2: Olivia's mom. Yes. Jeez, yeah Yes dude had his head on mommy's boobs sure what it looked like could explain his issues what are you working for the defense now
3: and we had a fantastic guest for that one like fantastic new guest that we had never had before she was so funny
2: her name was melody carlisle and yeah she's from the heaving bosoms podcast ended up being a
3: perfect pick yes podcast about romance novels
5: perfect yeah that was a perfect pick you
2: can't spell oedipus without us that's
3: right so yeah that's right all right kevin before we end the business section i have to ask Do we have any Patreon Patron Saints of the Week this week?
2: Thanks for milking that, Rebecca. Yes, our Patreon Patron Saints are Jerry Minshaw and Danielle Poon. Bless you. Jerry. Danielle. Thank you for supporting
3: us on Patreon. Thank you for everybody who supports us there. And thanks for those who just muscle through the business section anyway while we pitch you over and over and over again on joining this awesome thing that you should at least try out to see if you like it, in my opinion. But if you're not a Patreon for whatever reason and you listen to our show anyway, we love you very much anyway. I just want to let you know that. Kevin, should I go ahead and fade that music out right now?
2: Why don't you fade it out?
3: I'm going to go ahead and do that right now. Okay, so Toby, I have a big question in this documentary about Charles and Carol's relationship, okay? It sort of dropped briefly that when they were first dating, we have a colleague, right, being like, oh, I had concerns about the relationship, but then all of a sudden he would drop off like a, just something like a big bundle of flowers and everything would be wonderful. Didn't it seem like there's like a domestic violence angle here or something that was just never really explored, like more about... The dynamics of the relationship and maybe what like led up to the murder because it's it's just not really a part of this in any way.
5: I mean, the murder is barely a part of this, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. I, I don't know if it's exactly a MacGuffin, but it's sort of a, an excuse to look at all these race issues in in Boston, which is fine. But if you're looking for insight into like why it happened and stuff, there's just about no answers. I, I think I had the same reaction you did. Whereas like, oh yeah, I had some questions and you know, they'd have a fight and then the, the roses would appear. I was like, oh boy, that's the cycle right there. Like yep. just no bones about it. And they, they kind of throw out towards the end, like at one point, I think somebody says that she was pregnant and he had always said he didn't want to have a kid because he wanted to start a restaurant or something. He didn't, think the he, two he didn't want to have her
3: the upper hand in the marriage.
5: And then there was something about insurance money, which again, gets kind of thrown in there, but to, there's no follow up whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I think the big failing of this this documentary is that they really have almost nothing to say about the actual crime. The only thing that's interesting about the crime is the aftermath, which that is interesting, and I think they do good stuff with that, but it doesn't seem like they even really spent very much time looking into it because they don't even have like random side stuff or any color to it or whatever. It's like this thing happened. He made this very vague accusation that it was a black guy. And then suddenly decades and decades and decades of racism in Boston suddenly was unrestrained. And this is kind of what happened, but you don't go get any insight into uh, Chuck Stewart. I mean, the family itself just seems like the different outcomes for the kids. Yeah. It seems like that would be worth like taking a look at like why one guy's like, a lawyer and the other one died, died yeah. at age 45 in a homeless mm. shelter as an opioid addict. I mean, it just seems like there's stuff there that you could have looked into. I didn't know much about the Chuck Stewart murder when I started, and I know no more now.
2: Well, I think one thing missing from the documentary is Carol Stewart, right? Because I mean, did she even have a room to light up? Because it kind of demonstrates like how thoroughly removed from the story and the big story, right? How thoroughly removed from it she is because it's either about Chuck and all his machinations uh, afterwards and and all that stuff. Or it's about the effect on the black community, which is worth examining in a fresh way, but it's almost never about Carol and maybe the podcast that we're going to listen to on this next week will be different, but I just felt like that is an important aspect of the story that is just completely Overlooked time and time again.
3: So I will say this. And all respect to Carol Stewart. Mm -hmm. The death of a white woman is not as interesting or important as the effect that this murder and the investigation had on this entire city and the black community in it. That being said, the facts of the crime here are important because his family knew he fucking did it and didn't say anything in order to protect themselves and him. And that is what caused so much pain to the black community and the city. So I would say, were it not for those facts, like I would be more forgiving of the facts of the crime, not being included in the documentary. If That makes sense mm-hmm. because her, the murder itself and the circumstances leading up to the murder are actually important. Like knowing What motivated Charles knowing more about his family, knowing more about their situation? Like, why was his family covering up for them? What did lead up to it? Was there like a domestic violence angle that was already part of a pattern? Why was he estranged? What was going on there where the family was so quick to be like, well, he did it, but we don't get involved with that. Like, what was going on there? Because the result of that is what caused all this pain. The fact of her death alone is obviously on the scales of things lighter than what ended up happening. But it's fucking important to this story. And I agree. Laura, what do you think? Because the thing that really struck me was that like the the Boston Herald reporter kind of gets to it when she says like she knew she heard it in the 911 call. I did, too, by the way. Not, she's not wrong. Like, what do you think of all that?
4: Well, I mean, I guess the way that I'm looking at it is that, like I said, this is a case that had had a tremendous amount of publicity. Like if you live in this region, you know about this case. And my sort of take of not having more victim-centric storyline happening here was that that wasn't actually the purpose of this documentary. The purpose of this documentary was to examine this crime through the lens of racism in Boston, through the lens of changing Views and awareness of racism in Boston as it affected this case, as this case played out. And, like, not to take away from the fact that she lost her life and then her baby died, uh, you know, a few weeks later. But I don't really feel like that was the goal of this documentary. I feel like the goal of this documentary was to examine it through the lens of race. And I think they did that very well.
3: But it's not doing her justice, though. If they don't, I mean, that's the other thing. I agree with you. That being said, it's not doing her justice that they focused on the wrong things. And the reason they focused on the wrong things was his family lied. Like, why did his family lie? Like, that's, I mean, that's not nothing because they're at fault for that. Like, it's their fucking fault.
4: Well, and he's screwy too. I mean, I don't know. I think the detail about him that really stuck out to me when he was like coming out and he wanted to get his hair dyed because he was going to have TV appearances. And I was like, The fuck's wrong with you?
6: made a comment about, well, you know, um, I'm going to have to go and um, identify somebody at the police station or he made some kind of comment like that. And I'm sure the press will be there. So I just want to make sure. And I'm thinking to myself, dude, seriously, you got two gray hairs on the side of your head. This is insane.
5: I, I don't feel like I had a good enough sense of what the timeline was for when Matt told the rest of his family about this they, they kind of go to, and then everything changed. And then you see like all these like people walking into, I guess a court building or getting off an elevator or whatever. And like, I didn't know if it was one of those things where it was like suddenly Matt had told them, they're like, Oh fuck, we'd better talk to somebody or they'd known for a while. And then they got to some kind of tipping point where it's like, we have to do something about it. The idea that you would, do that and not have somebody keeping track of what Chuck's up to. When he finds out about this, like the family must have known that that was a possible outcome was was him jumping. And you know, regardless of anything else and and what he did and all this stuff, you would think that just as a family member, you'd be like, well, maybe we should send somebody over to sit with him so that he doesn't do something rash. I, I didn't quite understand the timeline and who knew what and then I didn't quite understand like how was he allowed to just like be on his own yeah. when that news came out. I that 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 seemed very odd.
3: It seemed like the documentary implied, Am I wrong, Kevin, that the police should have known more because of the crumbs that were spilling from the Stewart family before they did anything about it. It's what it they, Yeah, they, I they mean there was that.
2: like some lead. Like somebody Came forward, one of the friends, Yeah, I think it was, who who mentioned that uh, he had said something about like wanting to kill yes. his wife, or, right? And right. they did nothing I about mean, it. A good enough... Like, if they weren't already running in the wrong direction at 1,000 miles per hour, kicking in doors in Mission Hill and in Roxbury, that they would have immediately turned around and investigated this lead. Yeah. And that's, like, one of the big tragedies here, is that they did not do that, and... um. I was going to say hindsight is 20 but that's so stupid. They should have just fucking done that.
3: Two weird fucking details. Charles Stewart passed a bag to his brother with a <sighs> gun in it after he had shot himself and with his dead wife in the car, ostensibly, right? Yeah. That's fucking weird. Did his brother not notice that he had shot, his brother had shot himself? Or he, did he never just never not say, say that?
4: Well, he was, remember when he was like, oh, I just like saw this thing on the other side and like, whatever, or like. He totally downplayed it. But Charles wasn't like, oh, here are taking the bag. Because he probably hadn't shot himself yet. What the
2: hell were cameras
3: doing in the ambulance when they were taking him away? And what were cameras doing in, the, in
4: like the emergency room with the blanket over his penis while they're treating him for this gunshot wound? That's what I wondered. How did they have so much historical video footage? That was actually my biggest question about this whole documentary. I'm like, oh my God, now they're in the ER with him. And now, oh, look, he's naked. Oh, look. No, they're Thank doing you for
3: covering his peen, though. We do appreciate yeah. that.
2: I mean, when I worked in TV news in New Hampshire, Boston crews would come up for a lot and they were aggressive. But I cannot imagine how fucking aggressive you have to be. First of all, how do they get there so fast? Because I will say, I mean, it's nighttime and maybe they're covering other stuff in the city, but none of those TV stations are located in metropolitan Boston. So to get into that, like you have to they're like beating some of the cops there to that scene. And not only they shooting, the couple still in the car all bloody and the doping dead body. Yes. And then later pulling his dead body out of the river His twisted, weird dead body with his little white sneakers. When they pulled him out of the water, I was like, holy shit, man. The hospital thing was amazing that they were actually in the ER. Like who the he- I mean, this is obviously before HIPAA, but who was the- like, yeah, come on in here and take this photo. But even more surprising to me is that how much of that made air. Yes. Like you can shoot it. Absolutely, you can bring it back to the editing room. You cannot pull
3: a dead body out of the river and show that on the no. news.
2: And clearly, not two thousand twenty-four.
3: Unblanked blanked-out face. Like yeah, that was over. And that was the yeah. late eighties. This was not 89. like the seventies. This was like we were not showing dead bodies on the news. Like it
2: wasn't like Vietnam. What's going yeah. on
3: with the Boston News, Kevin?
2: Well, <laughs> <laughs> again, you can go out and shoot it, but then like producers and stuff have to have hard conversations about what are we showing? How much of this are we going to blur this? But that still was amazing to me because that like we would get complaints when we would do B-roll of somebody getting a shot in the arm, like a vaccination. Oh, I'm getting sick to my stomach. I can't imagine showing any of this on TV today without I mean, like on TV news, local TV news, without a bunch of
4: suicide stuff. It's, It's I mean, I remember when I was at the newspaper and we'd get, you know, oftentimes you'd get out there to an accident or some sort of scene with a photographer pretty quick and there would be photos that you obviously couldn't use and there would always be discussions about okay well we can use like sort of a faraway picture of somebody like covered by a blanket if it's a body or like if they're holding up the white sheet on the highway but like they would not you know it was very no clear what was appropriate and not appropriate socially ethically morally to show
2: yeah my recollection is sort of the best one that ever happened I would say best one, like the one that I was most comfortable with and thought like said it best visually was a time where we were covering a guy who fell through the ice and they were trying to recover the body. And this was kind of by accident that we left the camera kind of standing, pointing out. We knew there were a bunch of guys like doing something way out. The camera was out of focus as they pulled like the body. up. And what you could tell from the motions of the shadows was that you could tell they were pulling a body out, but you never saw any of that. So it was so implied that you got the thing that you want. And I used to like tell a cop, like, you know, I don't want you getting close to that and taking that photo. And I'd be like, do you think if we got that, we could air that? I'm with you on that. Can I just get close enough to get X, Y, and Z? So anyway, yeah, I'm absolutely blown away by what they filmed.
3: So, we can't end this conversation without talking about Willie Bennett and what happened to him. What happened to his family, the search of their apartment, and sort of the legacy that that leaves behind there. And of course, Mike Barnacle.
5: Oh, Jesus Christ.
3: And his jank ass self and his stupid column about it after. Anyway, what do you have to say about all this, Toby?
5: Mike Barnacle, I like I don't watch this, but at one point, wasn't he on freaking Morning Joe? He's still on Morning Joe, yeah. Is he still on?
3: Yeah. Not a fan of Mike Barnacle's myself.
5: Good God. But anyway, he's like old Boston, definitely. He's ridiculous. But leaving him behind, it seems to me like if there's one person who's the main focus of this documentary, it's Willie Bennett, who was a black man who threw, somebody calls it like the telephone game on Mission Hill or whatever, a story gets blown up and blown up and blown up some more until suddenly he is the main suspect and gets arrested. And I I think he was in jail for a long time for a completely separate offense, which I think they were trying to tie into it somehow. Anyway, they have great voices on his story. Like they have nieces and nephews and friends of nephews, and you really get a good sense of his story and just what a tragedy it was for that family that he was kind of picked out for no good reason other than some like teenage boys just like talking without thinking about what they were talking about one afternoon while playing video games. Right. And it kind of blew up from there. It's one of them going to his mom who happened to be dating a cop and the rest is history, but there's like incredible footage. I mean, again, we were talking about the access. There are news cameras in while they're searching her apartment and just yep. tearing the place up and news people are are talking to her while it's going on in the immediate aftermath talking to willie's mom and she's as you would imagine traumatized and it's all bs right yep. and then at the end when he's exonerated and she comes out and talks to the press i mean you can just see that it's devastating it's life-changing and the official kind of take on it as well I, I guess that's too bad uh, what can i say just- are you bitter there's some better
2: for what they did to my house and yeah. everything. What, what did they do they, to your house? They tore it up. You mean they... holes in the wall. Mm-hmm. Boston Police and Brookline Police did all that.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and...
1: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills.
4: The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is.
1: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
6: Chapter one, Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess,
3: All right, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out the documentary, Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning. It's three parts, and it is on HBO, Laura Bricker. What do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Murder in Boston?
4: Yeah, I'm going to go thumbs up with this. As somebody that sort of lives in the Boston region, I've lived here since like the early 90s. This was a case I've heard about before So going into this, I wasn't sure if I was going to hear something new and different. And I think this documentary did a really good job in terms of giving a voice to the black community and family members of those in the black community that were wrongfully vilified and accused during this initial investigation and did a really good job of bringing a fresh perspective to this case in the way that they examined it through the racial history in Boston. So, yeah, there are things that could have been added to this, you know, in terms of more information about the Stewart family and more information about Carol and and Charles. But I don't for me, I didn't feel like that was the point of this documentary. And I think for what I perceived as the goal of this documentary to shine light on the racial issues around this case, it did a really good job. It was three episodes Uh, covered it succinctly, and it was a thumbs up for me. Toby
3: Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down? For murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning.
5: All right, so this is a rare case where I came into our conversation hoping that I would get some help in figuring out what my (laughs) my take on this was because I'm really kind of torn between a bunch of things. Um, I think some of the stuff in this is really good. I think particularly the story of, of Willie Bennett, who is a black man who becomes the prime suspect in Carol Stewart's death. I thought that was really strong. You know, they give this sort of cliff notesy version of racism in Boston, which I think is, is really good if you don't know anything about the racial history in Boston. But I feel like it goes through things Pretty quickly, and it seemed to me like the kind of thing where if you didn't know much about it, like you might look at it and then go and like Wikipedia it or something and try and find out more information because it doesn't feel like it gives like a full enough story in and of itself. So it's sort of maybe like kind of a cliff notes introduction, and then I think the stuff on the actual Stewart case is like really really thin. So. I guess I'm a thumb sideways. I mean, it's well put together. And again, I think the Willie Bennett part of it is excellent, but the other two parts just for having like the globe and HBO involved, I would just sort of expect like something more than what they gave, which seemed really kind of thin. And in in some ways, again, is sort of like an outline of second half of the 20th century race relations, or lack of such in in Boston, and it it just seemed like, it and sometimes it was just sort of ticking off names. So I'm, I'm a thumb sideways. Kevin Flint, I'm going to go
2: uh, thumbs up. I think that even and this was one of our longer discussions, and even though I, I there were still a lot of things we've yet to cover, and I'm I'm glad that we have this rare opportunity where, in our next episode, we can come back to this case again and probably be talking about a lot of the same issues. But I was really impressed as somebody who was a contemporary of the Stewart case, but really too young when the busing uh, situation was really hot that I didn't have a good grasp on that. I was glad that I was able to get that and was informed more about my, my, uh, my thoughts on racial reckoning in Boston I thought that the visuals were really compelling, had some good people to talk to. So I think I got a good sense from the people who lived it that this primarily focused on the way the black community in the city was impacted by the reaction of officials to the case and sort of reopening these wounds that, that some have been trying to patch up. For the subsequent decade or so, so the, all that being said, I I thought it was um really well put together, and I'm very much looking forward to hearing how um the Boston Globe does uh, their podcast. Uh, they did a great job with Gladiator way back in the day. Mm. Um, the and Aaron so, Hernandez podcast. Yeah, and so I'm kind of looking forward to other new shades of thought and perspective on what happened with the crime and how it was mishandled and the. Uh, deleterious effects on the community.
3: Yeah, I'm a thumbs up for this, but not a strong thumbs up. I actually, it's, I would have structured this very differently. I actually would have added an episode, which is rare. Ooh. But I think that what, how I would have done this is I would have had a first episode be about the crime as the public experienced at the time the crime. The relationship, the crime, the murder, the mystery, sort of like the intrigue of it, you know, sort of culminating with like the 911 call, like and everybody like as a viewer sort of experiencing it in that way and then sort of realizing in the second episode, this is all bullshit. Going back in time, then getting the full history and then realizing how fucked up this all is, because I think one of the things that this does, that's a mistake Is it lays all the groundwork for you so that you're so entrenched in the groundwork, you know, it's bullshit from day one, which is fine because you kind of know that anyway going into it. But you don't really have sort of a sense at any point of, you know, you have the one reporter who's like, I never got it from the beginning. Like, I always knew this wasn't right. But she's the only one. Every other fucking journalist in the city totally bought this story, right? And, like, so many people in the city bought this story. And a lot of them were racist, but a lot of them were not. And it's like, why? Like, what was so compelling about this? But also, what was behind the murder? Like, like tell us that complete story and then tell us the rest of the story. And I, I, do, I just feel like that was just a missing chunk. Um, And I think that really good true crime documentaries do bring us into that moment so thoroughly. And then it's like cliffhanger. Oh, shit. And that's like the one thing that was that was missing here. So there's a lot, a lot of good stuff here. And the way that, you know, the Ray stuff in Boston was handled was really, really good. The Willie Bennett story was handled really, really well. But the missing piece stuff has to do with the why people fucking believed it like so hard that the part that doesn't have to do with how racist the city is the part that has to do with like how easily the media uh the murder um you know was there dv in the relationship the family like their cover-up shit like that stuff is good and i i, I think it's missing so yeah thumbs up for me but not a huge strong thumbs up and i'm very much looking forward to listening to the podcast and seeing what else it has to bring all right that's gonna do it for us but before we go Laura bricker a question to ask you an important one do we have a cat of the week this week?
4: Oh, people, we have something new and exciting oh, this no, week. Oh, no, we it an emu? We have a bird of the <gasps> week. It is week. an emu.
2: No, not an emu. Um,
4: Birdie Num Num. What? Who comes, Birdie Num Num comes to us from the Chaya family, friends of mine. And the Chayas took me into their house on Christmas when I had no oven and made me Christmas oh, dinner. Oh, chef, chef. Um, did you and eat the bird? Deer? No, the bird was in Florida, so Birdie Num-Num is owned by Kate Chaya, my friend and sister. Uh, Kate was vehemently opposed to keeping birds as pets, but feared if she left the young cockatoo behind with her ex, the bird's chances of survival were grim. Now, many years later, this avian Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is in her 20s and rules the roost. Known by many names, including Nummy, Friend and winged asshat. (laughs) She adores Kate and tolerates the rest of us. She is amusing and intelligent, but we have all learned to give Bertie Num-Num a lot of space when she's out and about, hopping along furniture, eating walnuts, or inspecting baked goods. Her squawk is not worse than her bite. They are equally painful. I love
3: cockatoos. (laughs) I really, really do, but they are. They're a lot. I Hate to break it to your friends, but Bertie Numnum's gonna live to be like eighty five.
4: <laughs> I know. That's what this guy in my neighborhood was complaining about one day, about how birds some one of his friends had to put their bird in his will. Yes. Ah. Yeah, those parrots for man. somebody to take care of it. And I was and he was like bitching about his dog dying and he's like but birds they live forever that's why parrots
3: shouldn't ever been pets because they live forever anyway lara bricker if folks want to reach out to you and pitch their animals to be cat of the week it obviously can be a bird or a dog or
4: any kind of animal at all how can they find you online they can find me at lara bricker on twitter it will always be twitter or they can pitch me through the Brichter scale, or through our email at on at gmail.com. or through the regular Facebook group at the Crime
3: Raiders on Facebook group. We get them all sorts of ways, all the all the places. Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you on social media. How can you be found?
5: At Toby Ball and H.
3: Kevin Flint, how can you be found?
5: I'm at Kevin P. Flynn.
3: And if you want to follow me everywhere, including Twitter or Instagram, where I post a lot of photos of my dogs, you can find me at Reb LaVoy. You can also follow the show everywhere at Crime Writers On, and that includes Reddit, YouTube. But I encourage you especially to join our incredible community and our really, truly amazing official Crime Writers On Facebook group. You can find it by going to Facebook, looking for the Crime Writers On podcast. And when you find our page... Join the group. There's a pin post there that tells you how to do it. Get episodes early and ad-free at patreon.com slash partners in crime Media. There you'll get the Crime Writers on After Show, Married With Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcasts. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the wonderful Livy Burdette. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the Treehouse Yoga Studio above the Mockingbird Cafe in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio, otherwise known as Studio C. The closet in our New Hampshire basement, where we also have no problem taking super close-up photos of all sorts of weird scenes of crime and so forth. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later.
2: Damn. <laughs> oh, gross.